week on the Electronic Intifada podcast, an in-depth interview with Dr. Tarek Lubani, who, along with filmmaker and activist John Grayson, was imprisoned in Egypt for 50 days. We'll speak to Dr. Lubani about treating the wounded while inside prison and the dire medical situation inside Gaza, where he and Grayson were on their way to when they were arrested and imprisoned. Israelis intend for the isolation to be debilitating. They intend for the isolation to, to be destructive. But what the Palestinians in Gaza have done is they've turned that isolation into their own kind of empowerment. You're talking now about possibly the best indigenous medical system uh, to be created with, within such a terrible siege. Plus, a special report on a plan by Christian Zionists to take over a Palestinian college in the Galilee region of historic Palestine. Our contributor Patrick O. Strickland interviews boycott activist Omar Barghouti. Such projects are not welcome because they are only ostensibly educational projects, whereas the real goal is a colonial goal, further Israeli apartheid. And Noor Judah reads a short story of exile and memory. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, associate editor for the Electronic Intifada in Oakland, with Patrick O. Strickland in the West Bank. First, we turn to the Electronic Intifada contributor, Patrick O. Strickland. This week, Strickland reported that Palestine solidarity activists are campaigning against plans by Texas A&M University to take over a college in Nazareth, the city in present-day Israel with the highest number of Palestinian citizens. Strickland filed this report exclusively for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Texas A&M University recently announced plans to establish an international campus in the Palestinian city of Nazareth, situated in the Galilee region of present-day Israel. The plans were announced shortly after Texas Governor Rick Perry visited Israel late last month. Perry was accompanied by John Sharp, the Chancellor of Texas A&M University. Together the two met Israeli President Shimon Peres, who the New York Times claims decided that the university ought to be located in Nazareth, the most populous Palestinian city in present-day Israel. Governor Perry's visit was no surprise. Back in June, he told the Washington Times that he was, quote, going to Israel to bring together Arabs, Christians, and Jews in an educational forum. The new Texas A&M campus will take over the Nazareth Academic Institute, a privately funded Palestinian school in Nazareth that has struggled due to Israel's refusal to award it accreditation and state funding. Omar Barghouti is a co-founding member of the Palestinian Campaign for an Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. He sat down and spoke to the Electronic Intifada. From what's been revealed so far, it looks like an extremely dangerous Zionist project uh, that has several objectives. Our educated guess is that the main objective is to undermine the potential or the possibility of establishing an independent Palestinian university within the state of Israel which has been the dream of Palestinian citizens of Israel for decades, actually. And Israel has been uh, thwarting that possibility for so long. So bringing an American university uh, to Nazareth would, uh, uh, would obviate the necessity for a Palestinian university. 
argument goes. So we're, 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 we think that uh, the fact that Shimon Peres, Netanyahu, and leaders of the Christian fundamentalist Zionists in the US are proposing this, this cannot be innocent. This cannot be for the benefit of Nazareth. This must be serving the overall objective of the regime in Israel, the apartheid occupation and colonization regime, to further Judaize the area, to further undermine the possibility of an autonomy of Palestinians within Israel, um, and to spread their gospel, so to speak, of uh, Christian Zionism among Christian communities in Nazareth, which is a real concern as well. The new international branch has been deemed a peace campus and is said to have the goal of providing education for Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Yet the names behind the project raise concerns about the real goals of putting an international university in Nazareth. On top of Governor Perry's history of staunchly supporting Israel, he is known for a number of racist remarks against Palestinians, as well as his close ties to leaders in the Christian Zionist movement in the United States. Among Governor Perry's close associates is John C. Hagee, a San Antonio-based evangelical preacher who is known for his apocalyptic Christian Zionism. Hagee is also the founder of Christians United for Israel, a right-wing group who supports Israeli settlement. He has been known to raise tens of millions of dollars for illegal Israeli settlement colonies in occupied East Jerusalem and the broader West Bank. Bishop Kutuf, who is president of the Nazareth Academic Institute, told the Electronic Intifada that they had not yet signed any agreement with Texas A&M. He said, quote, We haven't signed a single paper with them. We know nothing about it for the moment. Omar Barguthi also confirmed that there's been no consultation with the local Palestinian population in Nazareth about whether an international campus will actually address their educational needs. Who consulted with us? Or you decide in Texas our best interests, and you, or in Tel Aviv, and you impose it on us. Uh, that seems to be the case. They've consulted with Netanyahu and Shimon Peres and the lobby, and that's as far as their academic consultation goes. Uh, so such, uh, uh, such projects are not welcome because they are only ostensibly educational projects, whereas the real goal is a colonial goal, further Israeli apartheid. These fears were reinforced by a statement recently put out by the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In that statement, Israeli Minister of Education Shai Peron said that the new Texas A&M campus would serve as, quote, another important step in the integration of Israeli Arabs into Israeli society. Barghouti told the Electronic Intifada that another serious concern is that the establishment of an international university in the most populous Palestinian city in present-day Israel may lead to gentrification. In recent years, the indigenous Palestinian populations in historic cities like Yaffa and Akka have suffered from Israeli policies that aim to push them out and make way for Jewish development. If you drive around the Galilee now, Every, every population center, Palestinian population center is surrounded by colonies that prevent the development of the Palestinian village or town, that takes the best lands away from them, and that makes them so crowded. This is pure ethnic cleansing in, in much more urban development, uh, uh, under the urban development rubric. It's urban development for Jews only, of course, not for Palestinians. This is a core part of the Israeli apartheid regime against Palestinians uh, uh, in Israel. So Texas A&M is coming in the middle of this uh, context. This is yet another tool to further that, uh, the ethnic, continuous ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and continuous suffocation 
Palestinians within smaller and smaller, ever-shrinking areas. This could be ostensibly a university for Nazareth, but it can be really just another Jewish-Israeli-dominated institution uh, um, that becomes a settlement within Nazareth, that becomes a foothold, yet another foothold, uh, to, to Judaize the area and to start ethnically cleansing areas around it. Look at Hebrew University, the biggest gentrifying, colonizing power uh, in, in occupying East Jerusalem, aside from the Israeli state, is Hebrew University. They grabbed private Palestinian lands uh, as far back as 1968, right after the occupation. They confiscated that land with the support of the Israeli uh, military authorities, and they established Jewish-only dorms initially, I mean dorms for Israeli students, and we all know that Jewish students have the priority in such dorms. So basically the Hebrew University is not just complicit in, in uh, the crime of settlement, it itself is a criminal. It itself is settling, not helping the government to settle, it itself is settling Jewish settlers, academics and students, in occupied East Jerusalem. Palestinian solidarity groups in Texas and elsewhere have taken a clear stance against the project. Aggies for Palestine, a student solidarity group at Texas A&M, told the Electronic Intifada that they opposed this plan. Spokesperson Jalad Naguib said, quote, I believe that it is a poor precedent to set in continuing to support a nation that has repeatedly violated human rights and has repeatedly pursued a policy of apartheid against the Palestinian people. Diane Wood is a co-founding member of North Texas BDS, a group dedicated to promoting boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel until it complies with international law. Speaking to the Electronic Intifada by email, she said that A&M should not follow through with the project because Israel, quote, continues spending billions of dollars to destroy people both inside and outside of its borders. Omar Barghouti said that as information becomes public about the project and its backers, he expects more Palestinians and international solidarity activists to come out against it. I think it has to start here with a clear Palestinian position against this uh, project and exposing this project as yet another colonial apartheid project, because that's what it is. Once that is done, we expect from solidarity groups, we hope that solidarity groups, especially in Texas and the U.S. at large, to stand up against this by exposing it to Texan uh, taxpayers. We understand that the university itself will not be using its own funds uh, uh, to fund this project in Israel, but just the very fact that an institution funded by taxpayers is, is, is being used or abused by the fundamentalist right-wing Christian Zionists and the State of Israel, which is led by a fascist-leaning government, uh, to further colonize uh, our existence within Israel that should be exposed. And I think many decent Americans will, will understand this for what it is and will stand against this. That this is intervention in, of the worst type. We're not giving people a chance at better education. We're, we're using education for a political agenda. That's a very far-right, racist agenda. Should a Texan institution that's built through taxpayers' money be used or abused in such a criminal way? Though many will surely welcome Texas A&M's plans to establish an international, quote, peace campus in Nazareth, all indicators suggest that the project will meet significant resistance from Palestinians and solidarity activists across the world. As Barghouti concluded, It's another colonial project by Israel to further colonize our space, whatever is left of the Palestinian space within the state of Israel. For the Electronic Intifada's podcast, this is Patrick O. Strickland reporting from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank.
50 days, filmmaker, professor, and pro-boycott activist John Grayson and emergency room physician Tarek Lubani, both Canadians, were imprisoned in Cairo's notorious Torah prison after being arrested the day of the massacre by the Egyptian army on August 16th in Ramses Square. The day they were arrested, Grayson filmed Lubani treating dozens of wounded protesters who were shot during a demonstration against the coup government that ousted President Mohamed Morsi on July 3rd. Grayson and Lubani were on their way to the Gaza Strip, where Lubani has worked with Palestinian doctors and health workers under some of the most difficult conditions as Israel's ongoing siege, enforced by the Egyptian army, has made basic medications and medical supplies scarce or inaccessible. Lubani is an emergency room physician at the University of Western Ontario and one of the architects of the Canada-Gaza Academic Collaboration, a project that has brought doctors from the university to Gaza to train physicians in advanced cardiac life support and advanced trauma life support. Grayson was going to document Lubani's work as well as engage in conversations about queer issues inside Gaza. But they never made it to Gaza. Instead, they were detained, arrested, and thrown into Torah prison with 600 others, all facing a litany of charges, including attacking a police station, arson, conspiracy, and more. All of Grayson's cameras and film were confiscated, including the footage that he filmed of the dead and wounded being taken out of the square. Lubani's belongings, including remote-control helicopters to test the transportation of medical samples and other equipment he was taking to Gaza, were also confiscated. Grayson and Lubani began a hunger strike in mid-September to demand their release, while an enormous grassroots effort back in Canada worked within media and political circles to free them. Eventually, they were released on October 6th and returned home to Canada five days later. I met Lubani in Toronto just a few days after he came home and recorded this interview with him recently over Skype. I began by asking him to describe how it feels to be back home in London, Ontario. Um, well, it feels great to be back home. I'm, I'm happy to be with my family. I'm happy to be back into my home, sleep on my bed. What I'm not happy with is the fact that there are so many other people who we had shared a jail cell with who can't do the same, um, who were arbitrarily detained with us, but were not arbitrarily released with us. And after you've gotten out of prison, how are you still keeping in touch with you know, your fellow prisoners? Um, what's the situation like for them right now? So far, we've been reluctant to make contact with the prisoners there directly because the, the government certainly doesn't hold us in the highest regard. And so we're concerned that if we are in contact with the prisoners there, that would be a mark against them. So we've been generally keeping apprised of the situation through the lawyers of the group, but we haven't been making any direct contact with you know the, some of the friends who we made uh, while we were in there. Um, certainly, I mean, no direct contact because they're in jail, but no, no direct contact with their families either. Talk a little bit about, I mean, you're, you're a physician and you've done extensive work uh, in the field um, treating people, casualties of war and occupation and conflict. Talk about the conditions inside the prison and, and really what you learned as a physician, new skills that you picked up and, and what the conditions were like treating people inside jail. Well, basically, you know, prison medicine in general is is uh, 
an endeavor in which you're trying to put together the best available information, the best available resources, and the best available setup of the patient. So in, in terms of our training, especially in emergency medicine, we don't talk about actually what those things are. We talk about these axes and how we can try to bring them together. How can we try to make our equipment the most useful possible? How can we try to make the information as accurate as possible? And how can we put the patient into a situation that's the best possible? So from that sense, I, I guess emergency was the perfect training for what I found myself in, in, um, in Tora. In Tora, the equipment was terrible. Uh, knowledge wasn't really available, like I couldn't look it up, it was only what I knew. And patients were essentially impossible to, to optimize. What does that mean? Like functionally, what does that mean? Well, when I needed, for example, when I had a patient with an abscess, that's a, a collection of, of infection that sort of manifests as pus, the treatment for which is opening the collection. When I had a patient with an abscess, all I could do was take sort of a sheared apart tuna can and use that as a knife to, to incise it, to open that, that particular collection of pus. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine what any practicing Canadian or Western physician would, would think about such a thing. When, when our patients ran into situations where all I needed to do was to change where they were. So for example, uh, I had patients who were heat stroked and in the West it's very, very, or anywhere in the world, it's a very easy solution. Take them out of the hot place. Suddenly when we were in uh, this transport vehicle outside of Tora prison, we were not allowed to take the people out of the situation that was harming them. So, you know, I, I learned a lot about uh, being humble and taking the things that I did have and trying to maximize them. Um, you know, you, you kind of wish you had MacGyver by your side, really, a lot of the time, because there, there just were so many compromises that had to be made and these compromises were always at the cost of the patient. Talk about the wounds also that you were treating while you were in the square hours before you were arrested. What kinds of injuries were you treating and, and why is it significant to talk about the kinds of injuries that were being inflicted by, by this legion of snipers? Well, there's, there's a narrative that's contradicted by the facts. The narrative that the Egyptian government presents is that, in fact, uh, this particular police station was being attacked by armed pro-Brotherhood thugs and that they shot back because they had to. Well, in those cases, you expect certain injury patterns. You know, I'm not a military strategist, so I guess things, maybe they have a little bit more information to contribute. But I have seen a lot of people get killed in a lot of different situations. And as a general rule, when people are getting shot by snipers, this is, this is relatively cold, relatively calculated, and not usually defensive. So what was happening in, what we witnessed in, in uh, Ramses was very difficult to actually understand for me on the ground until I saw video later. We saw tens of sniped patients. That means, well, let's not say snipe because that's, that's a conclusion. Rather, what were the facts? The facts were that people were coming in with head and neck wounds that were very small, small caliber. 
Small caliber bullets are the bullets that snipers use because they, they stay more true over time uh, or, and over distance. So small caliber head and neck, these are sniper shots. That's, that's the inevitable conclusion that I or, or any doctor with my experience and with knowledge of these facts would, would come to. But what didn't make sense is that they were coming in the tens. Usually, most of these situations have just a couple of snipers and it takes time for them to reload, to pick new targets and to shoot. And what I only understood once I started reviewing the video after our release is that they had snipers lined up almost shoulder to shoulder, sniping on these patient, on these uh, protesters. The protesters, I looked a lot at a lot of video, these protesters were unarmed, nonviolent. In fact, they were nonviolent to a fault. When one of their, uh, when one of the protesters would fall, they would simply close the line and keep marching. It was, it really was something that you'd have to understand the, the Islamists or the Islamist mentality to, to know. They really thought that they would be protected by God. And they really believed that what would happen to them was what was meant to happen to them. And, and it was uh, certainly not what I would consider tactical, the way that they approached the, that particular situation. But um, back to your original point. Talking about the wounds is, is to expose the fact that people were being massacred rather than the, the assertion that the uh, Egyptian government came up with that there was this act of self-defense against armed shooters. Tarek, you've worked in South America, you've worked in Iraq, you've worked in South Lebanon, and of course in Gaza. Um, how was the situation in Ramses Square that day different or similar to situations that you've worked in before? The, there are lots of similarities that exist in all of these situations. The main similarity is that it is a heavily armed, well-trained force versus a civilian population that is generally nonviolent, generally believes in peaceful protest, and generally uh, unarmed. So that's what I saw when I was in uh, the West Bank during uh, Operation Defensive Shield that's what I saw when I was in Iraq uh, and saw Iraqi protesters go down by, by their tons. That's what I saw uh, when, when I was really in Gaza seeing sort of civilians being shot uh, by, by drones. And that's what I saw in Ramses. These were people who, the, the protesters, were people who very much were out there with the belief that peaceful protest and democratic movement were the way to make change. And the, the armies in all of these cases, and certainly the Egyptian army that day, was pretty keen on proving them wrong. Let's talk about what you were in Cairo to do that, that day. And that, you know, you, you were basically there on a stopover on your way to the Gaza Strip. Um, as you, you mentioned, you've been in Gaza before. Talk about the work that, that you've done in Palestine and specifically in Gaza and what you were on your way there to do this time? Well, of course it was, it was a stopover in, in Cairo. I would take a direct flight into uh, Gaza City if I could. But unfortunately the reality is that the, the armed Israeli occupation does not allow that. It simply does not allow me to go to, to Gaza where I want to need to be. Instead, it forces us to go through the only small window 
in, in this brutal siege on Gaza, which is the Rafah border. Uh, when, when we talk about what the work is in Palestine and what the work is in Gaza, really it's very simple. I'm a doctor. I care about health. I want to make sure that everybody gets the care that they need. And when I went to Gaza the, the first time, my intention was to become a part of this indigenous movement I knew was going on, to, to try to educate Palestinian doctors and to make sure that Palestinian patients got the best care possible. I don't go to Gaza to tell them what to do. I go to Gaza and I'm, and I'm asked uh, or told what the Palestinian plan is. It's a plan that I happen to agree with, so that's nice. And uh, I do it. It's, it's about training physicians. It's about advocating for patients. It's about getting the resources that are necessary. It is the same thing I do there that, that would need to happen in Canada, just on a different scale. In Canada, we advocate in small ways because the, the foundations are there. We don't need to demand clean water. In Gaza, there's often not clean water in the hospital. We don't need to demand electricity. In Gaza, there's often not electricity. We don't need to ensure that people are able to train without getting shot at. In Gaza, that's the case. You know, I don't need to make sure in Canada that my paramedics um, are not killed. In Gaza, paramedics are killed every year. So it's, it's one of those things where really all we're trying to do in Gaza is the same thing that we would be trying to do in any country in the world bring appropriate medical care to the population. The way we're doing that is through largely education and trying to find ways to, to get supplies in. For a while that was smuggling. So we, we had helped organize uh, ways to smuggle in basic medical supplies that we couldn't get in any other way. During times of extreme aggressive assault on Gaza, um, such as during Operation Cast Lead uh, several years ago, there were new weapons that were uh, essentially being tested on the people inside the Gaza Strip by the Israeli military, uh, weapons such as dime bombs, you know, white phosphorus, of course. You know, when there's already a lack or diminished amount of medicines um, and supply, medical supplies to treat patients across the Gaza Strip because of the Israeli siege, when you are treating patients who are coming in with these specific kinds of new kinds of wounds, how do physicians in Gaza deal with that? Well, physicians in Gaza are also people. And one of the things that, that I had seen and observed and witnessed was these people whose families are also under fire by these new weapons and weird weapons, whose uh, friends were also getting killed by them. They, they very often would have these moments in which they would just sort of break, cry, you know, weep. Um, I think it's the, the main effect of these new weapons, you know, white phosphorus being a key example, is to psychologically devastate everybody around. There are lots of good ways to kill people. White phosphorus is not one of them. White phosphorus is a good way to maim people, both psychologically and physically. And this seems to be the main recipe for most of the weaponry that's, that's coming out. You know, there is, I, I will give credit to the Israelis, we have seen new weaponry that actually seems remarkably good at killing within a very small radius, so small kill radius. 
So over the last year, we've, we've noticed uh, bombs that were launched from drones that had a kill radius of about three meters, which is remarkable. You know, they kill everybody within a three meter radius and nobody even five meters away. So, you know, uh, I, I think, I think there, there's lots of reasons why these weapons come out. Some of them are in fact, you know, minimizing uh, unnecessary civilian casualties or rather let's say untargeted civilian casualties. But the vast majority of these weapons in fact aim at one thing, which is to psychologically maim as, as much as physically maim. When, when we see these new weapons in Gaza, we're very, very aware um, of what weaponry looks like. We know what normal bombs look like uh, in terms of their injury patterns. We know what, what incendiary bombs look like. We know what white phosphorus looks like. You know, and so when we see something new, we're, we're usually, the doctors there uh, are usually quite aware that something new is being used. Uh, and what we do is what any good scientist would do. We compartmentalize, we document, and, and we try to, uh, to figure out how we can best treat this new, this new kind of patient. What kinds of medicines and supplies are still uh, in scarce quantities and, and, and supply across the Gaza Strip hospitals, uh, maybe specifically at Al-Shifa Hospital? So the main things that are in, basically, a bunch of people have gotten together and written up lists of, of what they consider critically short medications. Um, we're not talking here about luxury medications, and by luxury I mean things that, that treat conditions that will kill you in five years or ten years. We're talking about essential medication here. And in terms of the essential medication, uh, by some estimates, 30% of all essential medications are at zero supply. By other estimates, for example, MSF has done their, their own estimates, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, and they estimate that it's over 40% of essential medications are at zero stock in Gaza. So we're, we, I can't list for you one or two. This is about half of our arsenal of essential medications. I can tell you within the emergency at Shifa, uh, I have no access, nor is anybody trying to get me access to medications that I would use to paralyze patients when I'm trying to intubate them. You know, this is an essential part of not traumatizing a patient who needs to be intubated or sedatives so that so that they don't remember what's happening while they're while very important procedures are happening. We're using medications that my colleagues in Canada uh, have only used if they've been in practice since the 60s. So yes, we have a deep and desperate shortage there. The shortages of medications the shortages of supplies, especially what we would call consumables. I rarely have the sutures that I want available for the patients when I need them. I rarely have the correct size chest tubes. Sutures are how you sew people up together. Chest tubes are uh, the things that you put into people's chests when they've been shot in the chest or when they're bleeding in the chest or when, when there's a lot of air in the chest for other reasons. The, yeah, so I, I don't know how best to describe it other than to say that the shortage is complete. It is everything. It is medications. It is supplies. It is consumables. It is everything. 
And of course, this is because of Israel's ongoing blockade. This is because of Israel's occupation. This is because of the fact that Gaza is a hermetically sealed open-air prison. What, what kind of message does that send to Palestinian physicians, Palestinian civilians, um, that if they get shot and need to be intubated, that they will have to feel as much pain as possible. What's this? What's this? The direct impact of that psychologically, and and what kind of symbolic message does that send? Well, there's, I mean, the the siege is by Israel and its junior partner Egypt. If if Egypt didn't participate, um, for sure the siege wouldn't survive. The the message that it sends basically is, or that the Israelis want to send uh, is that you are alone. The, the message is well received by Palestinians but not in the way that the Israelis intend. Israelis intend for the isolation to be debilitating. They intend for the isolation to, to be destructive. But what the Palestinians in Gaza have done is they've turned that isolation into their own kind of empowerment. You're talking now about possibly the best indigenous medical system uh, to be created with, within such a terrible siege. You know, we're the, the next most comparable sort of siege is really on Cuba. And, and Gaza, within probably 10 years, is going to have, uh, I expect, a better medical system than Cuba. And when that system comes, the Palestinians will rightfully be able to say, we did it ourselves. The Palestinians right now are not counting on the outside world because they can't. They're not counting on other Arabs because they can't. They're not counting on Muslims because they can't. These, these traditional pillars uh, that the Palestinians thought they could count on, they now know they can't. And instead of being debilitated, like was the intention, they've become empowered. They've burrowed tunnels. And you know the, it's, it's good to remember not just the Egyptians who, who are being sort of touted as incompetent. They've burrowed tunnels into Israel too. And quite a few of them, quite embarrassing for the Israelis as that recent tunnel shows. The Palestinians have put holes into the siege and holes into the occupation. And we're talking both literally and, and metaphorically and in every possible way. Um, and what I, what I think it will result in, not to be too triumphalist about it, but is a genuinely indigenous system that is genuinely resilient and doesn't depend on the Israelis' uh, you know, generosity in opening the border today or tomorrow or the Egyptians' political situation opening the border today or tomorrow. Tarek, what can you tell me about how Palestinian medical workers, either physicians or physiotherapists, are being trained in Gaza and, and what the challenges are in, in that field? Medical training in Gaza is... Um, currently a solitary sport. In any other country in the world, there's a significant element of cross-pollination. So, for example, for me, you know, when I want to figure out what my colleagues are doing, what the state of the art is, I go on to conferences internationally all over the world. I talk to colleagues. I read medical journals. These are the ways that, that I learn. Medical school is easy. You know, you can throw a medical textbook at almost anybody and have them learn what's in medical school. But true medicine is about 
continuity of education. It's the fact is lots of what I learned in medical school is no longer applicable. And that's true for doctors trained in Gaza. So for them to be good physicians and provide good care, which they, they want to do, they need not just a good medical education, but a continuous medical education. That's what we lack in Gaza right now. And when there's no continuous medical education for the elders, that means that the medical education for the younger goes away. Our focus in Gaza, you know, and the health ministry's focus in Gaza as well, has been on getting every physician up to the standards, the best world standards, so that they can then turn around and educate the medical students who come after them. The way we're trying to do that right now is by bringing in some international, um, uh, some people with international training so that they can help train the, the local doctors in a way that creates and stands up that indigenous medical system. We're not yet there. Emergency medicine is about to graduate its first resident. Uh, well, it's first, he's a resident now. He will be a consultant next year. And his training is patchy, but good. And with time, hopefully we'll get it better and we'll be able to keep training more doctors. Just like we've done for emergency, we plan on doing for other projects. Right now, nephrology is the next big collaboration that we're doing. And we expect that they'll be able to train a significant number of uh, pediatric and adult nephrologists. Nephrology are, are the people who deal with the kidneys. They're the people who run dialysis units, which Gaza didn't have before the siege started. Tarek, one of the, um, the, the projects you've been working on uh, in London, Ontario, is, uh, has to do with actually toy helicopters. You described yourself as, as a tinkerer and a geek, and you've, uh, you've developed these kind of modifications to, to remote control helicopters um, in order to uh, help serve the needs of uh, medical workers and of clinics. Uh, where you work, and you were uh, bringing that technology to Gaza. Can you talk a little bit about these helicopters and, and what they were going to be used for in Gaza? So the, the idea of these quadcopters is, I mean, it's a bigger idea than just the quadcopters. It's the idea that Gaza has this tremendous need, and we've got this incredible reserve of technologies that we use to play around that might be beneficial. So I wanted to bring into Gaza 3D printers and quadcopters and any other technology, you know, I'm, uh, you describe me as a tinkerer and I describe myself as such. And uh, I'm, I'm also a geek, of course. And I think the other term that's commonly being used nowadays is a maker. And I want that that value to, to go out to the Palestinians. I can't possibly have all of the ideas in mind. Instead, I can give people the tools. Quadcopters are an incredible tool, and I have some ideas, I think good ideas, for what it is that they can do. For example, uh, transporting medical samples or you know small light medical supplies, uh, rare medications or things like that that are, that are needed emergently in one place or the other. But maybe those ideas are terrible ideas. Maybe once we test them in Gaza, they don't work. I can guarantee you, though, 
that there will come good ideas if you leave the technology in the hands of, of uh, doctors and nurses and you know, physiotherapists and dentists and all of these people in, in Gaza. They'll come up with good ideas for, for these quadcopters. And it might be something like transporting supplies and it might be something like you know, helping patients in this way or that way. And I, I mean, obviously, if I, if I knew everything they could do, then I would tell you. But um, I, I was really looking forward to the creativity of my colleagues, seeing what it is that they could do. And by the way, that's, that's kind of the way we do it in London, too. When I first came, I didn't, I didn't never thought about transporting medical supplies. I came with this thing to my colleagues. I said to them, look at this really cool thing. I made this and it costs only $500 and I don't know what to do with it. I just know it's really cool and it has lots of potential. And so they suggested, well, wow, you know, when we're on disaster sites, we can't tell what's going on. It would be really great to have a, a bird's eye view. So we flew them in disasters. They told me, wow, well, you know, we, it takes us four hours to transport medical samples from one of our hospitals to the other. So we started flying medical samples. I mean, it was... It was their creativity, not mine. I'm, I'm in that, in that case, very much an enabler. I'm, I'm a tech geek, not a visionary. So you know, I let them do the visionary stuff, and I just try to make it happen. I wanted, I couldn't wait to see what what my colleagues in Gaza would come up with that we could do. I love this idea of this marriage of being a maker, a tinkerer, like using your hands physically to make solutions for problems. And then also applying those skills and, and creativity to field work and to emergency medicine. Is that just like a, an essential nature of who you are as a human being, as a, as a physician? Explain your process a little bit about that. Uh, I don't really know that I could really put my finger on it. Like I, These are things I enjoy and things I'm passionate about and things I care about. So why not put them together? You're, ever since I was... Five years old, I've been taking things apart. My, my parents used to have a hell of a time keeping toys together. You know, so when you can take these things you enjoy and apply them in a way that makes sense, why, why wouldn't I do that? Makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't I do that? I, I love doing that. So the, the technologies, when I see them, I inevitably start thinking about all the applications and all the parts of my world. And so... You know, the first thing I made with my 3D printer was fixes for my broken plastic things. And when I saw need, I started to meet it. So when I'm in Gaza, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this particular need could be met. So, for example, the first thing I, I designed um, with the 3D printer was a way to, to look at people's vocal cords, because that's very important in, in emergency medicine. If you can see their vocal cords, you can put tubes between the vocal cords and then you can you can actually intubate. It's, it's called intubation. Intubate people. So we couldn't get these special kinds of intubation tools in Gaza. So I said, hey, why don't I print my own? And started doing that. You can get plastic pellets in Gaza. They're relatively. They're not easy, but they're. It's possible to get them. And so you can actually start generating ideas anywhere in the world, transporting them and printing them out there. It's, it's not quite there yet, but it's like, it's the best, the closest thing we have now also as a Star Trek geek. It's the closest thing we have now to the replicator. So I just love these ideas, I guess. 
when I met you in Toronto, three days after you had gotten back, you were talking about how you couldn't wait to get back to work. And, you know, and, and I, along with probably everyone else who you said that to, um, I was shocked because you'd just gone through this two-month ordeal in prison. You were on a hunger strike for weeks. It was very uncertain about, you know, what was going to happen to you. And, and, and you said something like, uh, you know, I've been resting for two months. I want to get back to work. Um, you love what you do. Well, uh, and you know, it's, I, firstly, I really do love medicine and I'm really in love even with medicine. It's, um, it gives me such joy, such unadulterated pleasure to, to practice medicine that, that of course I considered it, if nothing else, part of my therapy, but it comes also to another point about what is jail. And jail has two parts. It has the physical part, and undoubtedly I was in physical jail. And it has the psychological part. And, you know, yes, sometimes I was in psychological jail too, but by and large, I succeeded at never allowing myself to be in that psychological jail. And so one of the things that was important to me was self-improvement. I thought a lot, read a lot, wrote a lot, you know, exercised a lot, and really tried to become a better person. And part of that was resting as much as I could. And coming out with the idea that once I get out, I'm going to go full steam at life. Um, there's, there's two months now that I've lost that I that I was supposed to be in Gaza, that I was supposed to be teaching, I need to make that time up. Two months out of my life that, that have been on hold, I need to make that time up. So when I came out, I had a list of all the things that needed doing in the first 48 hours after I came out. And so I did them. Sleep wasn't on that list, so for the first 48 hours I didn't sleep. But that was fine, because I'd been sleeping very well for you know eight weeks before. And that list, you know, there was a 48-hour part to the list, and then there was a, a six-month and a two-year part to that list. And I need to do those things now. I need to figure out a way to continue this work, which isn't my work. It's, it's the work of the Gazans. And, you know, they, I was supposed to do it, and in a sense, I feel like I betrayed them. I said I'd be there on Saturday, and I didn't show up on Saturday. It's not how you do things, right? You tell somebody you're going to be somewhere, you should be somewhere. And I want... I want to make it up to them, and I want to go back um, when it's safe to do so, and I want to make sure, whether I'm involved or not personally, that the education continues and that Palestinian citizens and patients get the best care possible so that they can have the best lives possible. Dr. Tarek Lubani speaking to us from his home in London, Ontario. We have the full transcript of this interview, plus an interview with filmmaker John Grayson on electronicintifada.net. And finally, the Electronic Intifada's contributor Noor Judah has written about her first-hand experience of exile when Israel denied her entry to the West Bank earlier this year. Here is Judah reading a recent story of exile and memory she wrote for her personal blog. Trauma introduces therapy in the day-to-day. The long walk, underwater swims, train rides, and buses to them. 
memories turn short stories, and therapy introduces trauma to the same. The paralyzing song, the suffocating scent, worst-case scenario daydreams. And what's strange is that though I see Palestine everywhere, around every corner, the sounds don't match. I hear Tennessee and a woman named Delilah up at the altar of my favorite black church, singing Walkin' in Memphis, pick in and flink it, the salt out of my wounds. The chorus comes again, and she asks me, but do I really feel the way I feel? And when around the corners, I see just Chocolate City streets with Palestine nowhere to be found, Delilah is silent, and I hear Debka beats with every step on the sidewalk. I'm suddenly walking in Ramallah all through my new old city, pounding the Launa and Jafra and Zarif al on my long walk of therapy. But under the water, there is no noise. No one sings to me. There is pure submersion, only exhales, no intake of air, complete protection from memory. And I want to put off coming up for air for as long as possible. I want to hold my breath until I can feel my lungs beg, pound and beg, hurry for life to the surface, feel a drop of water fall off my eyelashes and hit my cheek, hear a stray noise from the above water crowd, hurry back underwater for quiet as quickly as I came up for oxygen to satisfy silly organs that don't know what they really need. And in motion, on buses and trains and planes leaving the city, it's the comfort of transition and hope of a healing arrival that momentarily expunges the trauma. It's the moment before stagnant presence reminds you nothing has been solved. And I never sleep in motion. I savor transportation of bodies, of worries, of love, of inexplicable fear running from itself, looking for new space to occupy, to colonize, secretly hoping the new space does the same to it. But for a second, the therapies backfire. The sunshine when I come up for air from my swim reminds me of a Mediterranean beach, and the scent of my lotion suffocates me as I breathe in Haifa. For a second, I lean my head on the window of the bus or play an old game on my phone on the train, and I remember passing time at the border at Jericho, a service ride to Nablus, or an uncomfortable transition from Akka to Yaffa on the train, my parents looking for seats next to Arabic sounds, trying to be lost in the view and not the soldier across the aisle. And I told a friend once, I tried to explain how terrifying it is to leave Palestine. I tried to tell her that we always know it could be the final departure, that we in the Shatat know risk in different ways. And she smiled and hugged me and told me, see you after graduation. And I did, I saw her again. After graduation, after writing about all of it and studying hard, I defied the fear of the final departure. I had five more months on my clock, five. It took that long for me to unlearn, to forget 25 years of what we knew. I wanted to unlearn and believe, imagine new possibilities and erase terrifying knowledge. But you can't unlearn what will reteach itself to you through truth. And the truth is, when they put me back on the bus across the border, my heart was humming walking in Memphis. And when I called you in Ramallah, in tears, gasping for air, my lungs begging like after a long underwater swim, I couldn't hear Zarif al I heard Delilah's voice coming through the desert air in the cab ride back to Amman, asking me if I really felt the way I felt. Shock, really, I could hear her ask me with sass. 
And at the detention center months later, there she was again with her soulful musings. You should have known better. But when I landed back in America, Delilah was still back in Palestine and Jafra was what was buzzing in my ears. The Mijwa's full blast. Drowned out the customs officer's welcome home. There it is, of course, home. The narrative seems old, tired. Months later, during a day-to-day therapy ride down the coast, I say to a friend in exasperated tone, I miss home. And a glance from her asks me without words, which one? And so I respond, all of them. And in the moment I want to write off the borders and nations and settled senses of familiarity of any place, I remember how distasteful I find the privileged who can do so with such ease, with their theory and liberal above it all indignance, with their ignorance of the violence of insecurity of home. And so I respond, all of them. electronic intifada's contributor, Noor Judah, reading her piece, Anti-Triggers. You can find her work on her blog, isdude.wordpress.com. We'll also link to it at electronicintifada.net. And that's it for our weekly Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis by our team of correspondents and bloggers, visit us online at electronicintifada.net. You can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and we're now on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and have the EI podcast automatically downloaded. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. Thank you.